Hier komen wij in vreemd. You're listening to Red Flag Radio, the podcast of Red Flag Newspaper here in Australia. My name is Ros Ward, and I want to acknowledge that we're recording the show on Indigenous land that was stolen, that was never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Um, Red Flag Radio is a revolutionary socialist podcast, and one of the things we've just set up that we would like you to check out is our new Patreon account. So patreon.com forward slash Red Flag Radio podcast. And you will find details there about how you can support the show if you like what we're doing, what we are trying to do. And obviously, even just a couple of dollars a month would be fantastic to help us keep this show going to make it even better and to do some new things that we've got some ideas about. So uh, Patreon, Red Flag Radio podcast, if you want to look us up and support the show, that would be fantastic. If you are not able to do that, then just sharing... Um, on your social media, letting people know about the show, subscribing, leaving us reviews, all of those good things are incredibly um, helpful. And thank you for the people who've already done that. Mm-hmm. So Liam is uh, the producer of the show here by my side again, socialist activist and filmmaker, and we're joined and we're very happy to have Roxanne on the program today, who's a socialist activist and a scientist um, to talk about the topic of food production mm. and capitalism. And this has really become um, one of the major questions, I think, in relation to climate change, the kind of um, catastrophic effects of climate change that um, we're seeing around the world and the concerns that people have about what will happen in the future on this planet around food production. So there's a lot of debates and discussions that are taking place on this topic and we wanted to kind of investigate it a bit more and think about sort of the revolutionary socialist perspective on some of these questions. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Roz. Okay, so let's start with today then and then I think we'll go back to the history um, of food production and then end with what we can do about it or what some of our demands might be today as well as sort of what the future might hold. So... People know that food production basically has an impact on climate change. What are some of the major ways that 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 has an effect right now? Yeah, so a lot of people don't know about the agricultural industry is that it is a huge greenhouse gas emitter. So approximately a quarter of our greenhouse gas emissions are from the food industry. So that includes food production itself, uh, but also agriculture is one of the biggest drivers of deforestation. Uh, Over the last couple of hundred years, we've cleared land approximately the area of both South America and Africa to make way for farms. Uh, Then, of course, you have the meat industry, which is um, a huge emitter of methane. Uh, You've got your fertilisers, which are huge emitters of nitrous oxide. Um, And not only that, but the actual farming practices are ruining the land um, and its ability to grow future crops on them. So the chemicals we use ruining the soil. Um, A lot of these chemicals get into the oceans and they kill our fish. Uh, And then, of course, we have the issue that if we're not killing off our fish with chemicals, uh, 
Some studies suggest we might be actually fishing the oceans to extinction by 2048. So it's a huge contributor to climate change um, and also just the ability to make food in the future. Yeah, because the the kind of um, the contradiction, I guess, with food production under capitalism is it's supposed you know capitalism is supposed to be this system where um, you know it's the best possible way to kind of operate. Um, and feed people and do all the things that the system claims to be able to do, but at the same time as ruining the planet through agricultural production, we also have this situation, I think this is something that people are worried about with climate change, that actually as a result of ruining the planet through these methods, you're also not producing as much food. So the actual yields have gone down. And so the the idea that, you know, we can't even feed people through this method of production even though it's so intense you know and all of the effects of that um is a big part of it too that's something you you come across yeah yeah absolutely so just a bit of statistics about the future and our ability to feed everyone so by 2050 the un predicts um that a combination of rising temperatures um, and what we're doing to the soil will reduce agricultural yield by about 20%. That's probably a conservative statistic. Um, Another example I like to talk to is in degrees. So we know that by the end of the century, we're probably going to see a warming of about four degrees. In that situation, the models predict that In the south, we're probably going to only be able to produce food in places like Tasmania, New Zealand, Antarctica, and in the north, um, like Siberia, Canada, Alaska. Uh, But actually right now, um, even though there are so many people starving, we actually produce more than enough food to feed everybody. Um, in every continent across the world, we are making a surplus of food. Uh, We just live in a system where there is not a priority to feed everybody. It's not a human right to access food. Um, And the reason why everyone isn't fed is a mixture because we have huge amounts of food wastage. So about 30% of food is wasted. And most of this is um, on the farms. You know, they're not allowed to send certain sizes or colours of produce to the supermarkets Mm. um, during the process. Even those dodgy ones are not that dodgy. No. You know, in the supermarket where they now have the bit of like the out of shape apples Mm. or whatever, they just look the same. Mm. So they still, oh, yeah, they still don't actually, um, they still scrap a whole lot of it that doesn't even fit in the dodgy ones. Yeah, exactly. Because we just live in a system where the supermarket wants, you know, a certain shape, a certain size. Um, so, you know, wastage is a big reason why people starve. But also, you know, just repeating again, food is not a human right. So um, I like to give Africa as a good example of this. So, for example, Africa produces more than enough food to feed everyone in Africa, but it has a huge proportion of their population starving. And you see many examples um, when Africa goes through periods of drought where the levels of starvation will go up, um, but their exports will stay the same because it's more important for that produce to go to European supermarkets um, than to feed the people of Africa. Yeah, so um, it's sort of an incredibly destructive industry under capitalism, really inefficient, in fact, because you just, scra- you just um, 
waste a whole bunch of food. In fact, you know, there are stories about food um, producers having to like pour chemicals over food so that people don't come and kind of scavenge, you know, take the food that's surplus, setting food on fire, um, all sorts of different ways that Mm. it's just barbaric kind of treatment of something that is just like a fundamental human need. Yeah. I mean, it applies to, there's that, there's that, uh, you know, that classic famous example from the Grapes of Wrath uh, of, you know, the characters watching the, watching the orange fields be set alight during the depression when people are starving. And I, to me, that always, always sheets home uh, the way that under capitalism, all these things that should be just a basic human right, just a given uh, are a commodity. And if there's, if they can't be sold, they get destroyed because the, it's not just about food. Even I know we're talking about food tonight, but it applies to stuff like housing as well. You know, I remember when the, um, when the financial crisis first broke back in 2008, 2009, whatever it was, and it was kind of manifesting the subprime mortgage crisis first, there were whole swathes of the U S where they were, there was an overabundance of housing that had been repossessed. So record levels of homelessness and record levels of empty homes, and they couldn't put two and two together. So all these cities were just bulldozing houses. You know, it's just this Mm. madness of of capitalism. Because you can't make a profit by giving things away for free. Our comrades across the world. So it's sort of a, it's a, a really um, inefficient, destructive industry. But what happens now when people see millions of people around the world starve is the argument is made, well, um, what we need to do is further expand this agricultural productive system, this capitalist system that is killing the planet, um, that is geared for profit. Um, and the problem is it's, not, it's just not producing enough, which is a complete lie. It's a total, um, yeah, untruth. <laughs> I sound like Donald Trump. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's kind of, that's what people are saying though, right? In mainstream agribusiness, agri, is there an agri-economics? It probably is. Um, but that's the argument, right? Yeah, absolutely. And as I said before, um, you know, the same organisations such as the UN that will make these arguments that especially in a growing population, uh, we're going to need to, you know, increase our food production by 50%, will then also um, publish these reports showing that we produce more than enough food for everyone. Um, So it's clearly not a matter of making enough. Um, Another argument that's made a lot of the time is that uh, the agribusiness we have today and what we use, the chemicals and the strategies we use for farming um, is what is required to create enough food. But hopefully uh, during this podcast and talking about the history of food production, Mm. uh, it'll become quite clear that none of these choices um, in agribusiness were made to, you know, produce food in a way that was sustainable and to feed everybody. It was just done because you can make profits out of it. Yeah. All right. So let's look at the history. Before capitalism, um, Food production, I mean, obviously in a feudal system, the main difference, well, not the main difference, but in terms of food production is that a lot of people had access to their own land to be able to grow food for their own families, um, crops, maybe have some animals, and also be able to access kind of common land to be able to forage for food and all of that kind of stuff. 
So what was that system like in terms of the effect it had on the earth and um, people's experience and relationship with food in a pre-capitalist society? Yeah. Well, you can actually see in history that I guess because people were in charge of creating their own food and and therefore their own livelihoods to sustain themselves, um, it was in their best interest uh, to use farming practices that would ensure the fertility of the land um, was retained for future food production. So some good examples of this are that, you know, they always let – crop fields, um, periods of rest in between crop harvest. Uh, A lot of them planted legumes besides crops and they probably didn't, well, they didn't know the science behind Mm. this. But uh, the reason why that works really well for soil fertility is that legumes can fix nitrogen from the air and convert it into a um, form that plants can use for energy. Um, Another thing they also knew about was that you can take organic waste from plants and animals and recycle it back into the soil. So you can look back to documentation from the Roman Empire where they talked about the importance of manure. So they used all of these things in their farming practices um, to ensure that they would have, you know, good harvests well into the future. So the beginning of capitalism then um, really transforms that. It does it quite rapidly because with the new kind of ruling class ownership over production and also of land um, and the kind of market that was established through the beginning of capitalism really changed that relationship. So a lot of people were just driven off the lands, one of the big things. Um, What sort of other stuff happened in that period where capitalism kind of took over and why is this such a kind of turning point in the history of food production? Um, Yeah, so absolutely. So at the start of capitalism, uh, and we can look at England because this is the best documented, uh, they basically, the capitalist class created enclosures, basically driving people off the land um, because they wanted um, to basically create commercial farms um, for market interests. There was like a market for for having more sheep because of the wool market and, you know, growing certain crops. And, of course, when the peasants were driven off the land, uh, they could not support themselves anymore, so a lot of them flocked to the cities to find work, uh, which sparked off the um, Industrial Revolution. And this creates a big separation um, of humans, uh, not only from the land but over their control of making food, um, and this is described as Marx as the metabolic rift. And practically what that results in is, for example, instead of having a situation where the peasants are recycling organic matter back into the land, um, you've got all this organic matter being sent to the cities to feed people and the waste instead is being dumped in the rivers. Mm. Um, then you've got you know, other examples in that the sort of sustainable agricultural practices are now not being used uh, because they take a lot of work and they're not needed for profit. So you have this situation where, you know, at first agricultural yields um, did increase during this period, but it wasn't sustainable and you started seeing um, crops fail across England. Because initially you'd think 
Well, it surely it's more efficient than everyone having two sheep to ha- mm. having a big field with like a hundred sheep in it and one person to look after them. So that idea of like um, making bigger commercial farms initially actually did help food production, but then because there's such a sort of um, rapacious need for food in the cities and, uh, you know, people wanting to produce as much as possible, as quickly as possible, they started looking to things like fertilisers and stuff like that. So that's where you get this introduction of, you know, what we'll just do anything to the land basically to make it produce more and quicker so then we can make profits. Who, you know, who cares about the long-term effects at that point? Whereas if it's your land as a peasant, you're not going to fuck it up basically by um, not thinking about what's best. So we have this, and it sounds like a funny kind of um, turning point, but the use of fertilizer and what that starts to do to the whole ecosystem basically is also a huge um, turning point at this moment. Yeah, exactly. The history of fertilizers is disgusting. Mm. So back in England, I guess one of the first things they tried was ground up bones and they did that by basically raiding battlefields across human bones across Europe. Uh, That wasn't that effective. So the next thing they went to was guano. Uh, And the things they did, so actually, guano is basically bird shit. Um, It accumulates on these isolated pieces of land out in the sea. And the things they did to to acquire and get a monopoly over guano. So there was the War of the Pacific in the 1800s, pretty much completely fought over guano. Uh, The US passed the Guano Island Act, which basically said that the US could claim territory of any uninhibited land. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely, if it had guano on it and they wanted to get it. Um, And not to mention, like, the conditions in the guano mines were absolutely brutal. They used debt slavery. Um, They were you know, conditions that basically people would be told that there were fortunes to be made on these mines if they just, you know, committed to a couple of years. They get to these islands, like these small desert islands. They're expected to mine tonnes of guano a day. Um, People are getting sick from all the guano dust. Um, There's lots of suicides um, on these islands. It's absolutely horrific. Um, And then despite all this effort and turmoil people went through, um, trying to use guano still didn't overcome the fact that these farming practices were unsustainable. Mm. So this culminates in things like in the US in the 1930s, what are called the dust bowls, where the soil erosion because of the farming is so bad, it just creates these huge dust blizzards um, that basically wipe out towns and destroy the livelihoods of so many people um, that were farmers. It goes back to the grapes of wrath. It does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah dust bowls and the grapes. Um, uh, just a quick little note there about the the wars of the Pacific and the Gua- the Guano Wars. Uh, if you're ever wondering why or how it came about that Australia has a concentration camp on the roof for refugees, it goes back to this history. They seized Nauru is entirely made of guano, uh, and was one of the islands that Roxy was just talking about. Uh, and Australia seized that from Germany during one of the wars in the late 1800s uh, and fought a series of battles over it right up to and even past World War Two. 
um, using a lot of Chinese indentured labor. There's a series of very heroic uprisings by those Chinese laborers that people should read about in the Marxist Left Review. Oh, yeah. Um, which Liam wrote. Yep. So he should know. And actually, Marx and Engels write about the guano wars and and they're actually very interested in environmental science, which is sort of an element of, of Marx that um, is not often um, recognised. So, okay, we're just going through this history. We get to the 1930s, there's the Dust Bowls, the, the Great Depression, people, the capitalists have been trying to kind of rescue the soil through this fertilizer use. It just keeps actually getting it worse and worse and degrading because ultimately they're still planting monocrops and doing it over and over again in huge scale and so on. So then after World War II, because World War II is sort of the thing that gets capitalism out of the crisis that comes before it, after World War II, you have this thing in food production that's called the Green Revolution. You think, oh, this is going to be better. The Green Revolution, that sounds good. Um, so what happens in the Green Revolution then? How do they try to change things in that period? Yeah, so the Green Revolution's usually touted as the thing that solved the issue of world hunger. Uh, it was nothing like that. So, yeah, it came off the end of World War Two, as you said. And at the end of World War Two, America has, you know, all these industries that they've built up for the war and now the war's over. So one thing they do is decide to convert a lot of these industries uh, into agricultural industries. So for a good example is the ammonia plants. All these ammonia plants were built to make explosives, uh, but you also can use ammonia to make synthetic fertilizer. So they just convert all these bomb factories into fertilizer factories. Uh, another thing they do is they turn war planes into crop dusters, uh, uh, the factories that make tanks are now making tractors. So they've got this big agribusiness building up. Um, they really push it onto the farmers in America. And this causes the farmers especially to um, to specialise according uh, to this new agribusiness. So, you know, growing a lot of grain, a lot more monocrops, uh, a surplus of grain more than... Mm-hmm anyone in America could even eat or, you know, the countries they're trying to export it to for in Europe. So what they do instead is go, okay, well, if we want to increase our profits, uh, we should find a way to take this agribusiness to other countries. And that was basically the Green Revolution. So they pick um, countries that are under the influence of the Red Revolution, so the Soviet Union, uh, and push the agribusiness on them. And basically say, they start by saying, um, we'll give you uh, some of this stuff for free, sort of as food aid, but you have to then uh, basically be contracted to continue um, buying our seeds, our machinery, our fertilisers. And this happens, you know, in, in Mexico and in China and in the Philippines. And all the farmers are basically forced to buy um, the products of this agribusiness or basically they're, they're outcompeted at this stage. 
So you get a situation where, uh, similar to America, now they're specialising in monocrops and things like that. And they're having their own situation where the smaller peasants who couldn't afford these seeds, these chemicals, um, can no longer sustain their own livelihood. Uh, But the situation this time, unlike the Industrial Revolution, is, of course, they flock to cities to find work. There is no Industrial Revolution. Uh, So instead, you get slums forming around the major cities of these countries. So that's basically the Green Revolution in Mm. a nutshell. And even when you look at the statistics of did it actually solve world hunger, it didn't even really do that. Mm. Um, The numbers suggest that in China, uh, the amount of hungry people did go down, but in the other countries, it went up significantly due to all the peasants in these countries being plunged into poverty. Yeah. And then this massive sort of monocultural production of especially things like grain meant that they had these huge stockpiles of grain and then it's like, here's how capitalists think. What can we do to profit from this grain? We can add in another layer of labour into the production process to process grain into some other products that maybe we can sell on the market. So that some of those things like um, uh, biofuels, fructose, uh, corn syrup, and all of the things that corn ends up being in which is one of those Mm. things of like if you can add another layer of processing then you've got another layer of um labor power that you can exploit and then you can make more profit so then grain is fed to the meat industry as well so it's like everything that sort of if ordinary people had a say in it if you have heaps of grain what should we do with it give it to people who need Mm. something to eat it's not rocket science yeah instead they go no we're gonna make this into a highly addictive um, new type of food type product. So, I mean, I would call it a food type product because it's not exactly, is it? Um, And then, you know, add another layer in and all of that. So that's just, I mean, and that's all we've been talking about so far basically is um, non-livestock food production. Mm -hmm. When we get to the livestock part, so then they start feeding this to animals um, and increasing the number of livestock because you can also make more money out of animals, right? Yeah, absolutely. So that was, I guess, one of their biggest ideas was that if we've got all this surplus grain um, and grain is cheap, you can't make a lot of money out of grain. Uh, so, yeah, start feeding it to the animals. Uh, not only does that um, allow you to make more money off the grain, but it also then allows you to physically separate the animals off the land. And that's where you start to see um, the growth of, you know, factory farming practices that we mostly have around the world today. And it was a huge rise in animal numbers, the meat mm. industry, um, due to this change. It went from something like in the 60s, we used to slaughter about 10 billion livestock a year, whereas today it's more like 70 billion. So a really significant increase. So if we go to today then, I mean, the soil has basically um, lost all of its nutrients because of all these processes. It's also just eroding at a point of sort of desertification, whatever that word, you know, turning into deserts, um, monocropping, 
uh, agri- uh, animal production and so on. In Australia in particular, you see these kind of crazy crops being grown. Mm. So what do we have in Australia? We have rice, cotton. Yeah. Yep. Almonds is another one. Oh, we, yeah, almonds. Mm. Across the world, the current industry really just likes growing crops in areas that they're not suited to grow in. So you can look at, yeah, the major farms around the Galilee Basin, for example. Uh, yeah, a, a great example is Cubby Farm, one of the mm. biggest stations, primarily grows rice and cotton, huge water-intensive crop. Uh and the Cubby Station uh, has licences to something like, it's the equivalent of 184,000 Olympic swimming pools worth of water that they're allowed to take for these water-intensive crops every year. To grow crops that never should mm. be grown on this island. Absolutely. And you can just imagine what that happens then. Obviously, you know, the water sources mm. from the area dry up. Um, you get to the point where towns around these farms, you know, people in towns can't even get access to drinking water uh, while these huge mega farms just get these mm. free licences uh, to use the water. Yeah. It's fucking disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> and that, I mean, and that's a huge... Um, they make quite a lot of money at, out of that um, cubby station. But actually the big profit makers in the agricultural sector are the people who make um, commercial crop seeds, right? So, and agricultural chemicals, this is where the money is to be made because basically they've monopolized the market around seeds. So their, their seeds are um, like patent protected um so you can't copy the seeds you can't grow monsanto seeds for example um without buying them from monsanto so those big companies have massive revenues um in australia as well right yeah absolutely so in recent years through a series of mergers and acquisitions uh we're now down to something like four companies um that own proprietary own like 60% of the world's seeds. Uh, and a lot of the time, you know, farmers, if they're to use these seeds, are not allowed to replant them every year. Uh, in some cases, you know, farmers have obviously gone against that and replanted them. So then they've genetically engineered se- seeds, so they'll terminate and you can't replant them. I mean, this is what is happening now to, you know, what seems a very basic, beautiful bit of nature, such as a seed that grows food. Yeah. yeah, and then all the fertilizer stuff on top of that. Yeah, and the t- the Terminator seed is to me just like a microcosm of everything that's <laughs> yeah. fucked about the stories you're telling. Like the idea that they would spend resources developing a seed specifically that cannot recreate itself is just fucking mad. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned the fertilizer. I mean, people, I don't think people realize how energy intensive fertilizer is. For people listening, Google ammonia plant. Like they look like a huge oil rig and they're just so energy intensive. I mean, ammonia production, which mostly goes towards fertilizer, uses about 5% of the world's natural gas and requires huge amounts of heat and pressure just to make one ingredient of fertilizer. Mm. It's just so irrational um, and energy intensive. 
our comrades across the world. So when we look at all of that, it's a pretty fucked mm. up picture. Um, different people have different solutions, I guess, to this huge issue of the soil degradation, um, the fact that food is not getting to where people need to eat food, um, the destruction to the climate more generally, the contribution of greenhouse gases. And one of the big things I think that a lot of people talk about now is basically um, trying to stop or limit anything to do with livestock production because out of all of the agricultural production, there's a case to be made that livestock is the worst part of it and the emissions from livestock. Yeah, absolutely. So the meat and dairy industry, so the whole agricultural industry is about quarter um, of greenhouse gases. Meat and dairy is about 15% of greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, This is mostly because especially ruminant animals, so cows, um, produce methane, uh, which is a really potent greenhouse gas. It's more potent than carbon. Uh, But one of the biggest issues is also the fact that we now feed uh, meat our crops. And it's a huge amount. It's something like 30 to 40% of the world's cropland goes towards feeding animals. So you think about all the energy that goes into growing those crops, you know, the fertilizers, the chemicals and stuff, and then it's just going towards to feed livestock to create another piece of food. Um, It's absolutely inefficient Mm. uh, and a huge greenhouse gas emitter. And they even feed them fish. Yes. I didn't know that. Yeah. Quarter of the world fishing... Um, quarter of the world fish that are fished get fed to animals, yeah. including other fish. Wow. Yeah, including farmed fish. Get fed fish. Wow. Absolutely bananas. Uh, do you know, Roxy, if, um, I mean, because if, 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 if all this livestock is like every other commodity under capitalism, not only is the whole process mad, but they're producing too much. They're constantly sort of over, you know, all this stuff gets produced that then can't be sold and gets destroyed, like we were saying earlier. So that's, I imagine that's part of the equation here too, that the, all of this land being used to grow crops and fish, you know, being used to feed, all of this stuff being produced to feed cattle, for example, which I imagine a whole chunk of, which never ends up in a human belly anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And is wasted, yeah. Mm. Okay, so let's get to the solution part of things. Um, is there a solution? Yes. Well, I think... Firstly, when a lot of people start reading about this issue or being concerned about agriculture and its impact on the environment, the first thing to do is like to sort of turn inward and think, you know, it's what you choose to eat and that. And, you know, the animal rights movement and, and veganism is definitely growing in popularity. And I definitely think that, like, for example, I grew up in a vegetarian household. Um, I think it was really great for my health. Um you know, it met my morals, but it's not the scale of solution we need. Unfortunately, me being a vegetarian has done nothing to the boom in dairy and livestock. So we need uh, a system-wide solution. And theoretically, I think in terms of all the industries that you could transition, uh, you know, to be more sustainable, food is one of the easiest 
because we know how to sustainably farm. Yeah. Uh, you know, we know how to recycle nutrients. We know how to grow crops uh, without all the chemicals. Um, and pretty much all the studies show that the yields you can get from farming sustainably are fine. A lot of people will make the argument, oh, you can't produce enough food that way. Most of the studies suggest you absolutely can, mm. in theory. Yeah. I mean, uh, someone I know in Adelaide is really into like soil science stuff and she's working on very small scale projects but very simple ways of making organic compost um, and if you understand the soil and can test the soil and you understand what nutrients it needs, it's really easy actually to regenerate mm. soil and be able to grow stuff and you never need fertilizer. You don't ever, you would never need fertilizer if you just were more conscious about the soil and, and regenerating it. It's totally possible. So there's heaps of different things like that. I mean, and then um, what about meat and dairy then? So there's debates about this, but if you were to have like a complete blank slate to say, what are we going to do with the whole of agriculture? You know, forget capitalism. We've got a chance of saving the planet and the way we produce food. Would people still be able to have meat and dairy? Or do you think that's something that would just have to not, not be possible? Yeah, well, I'll firstly say that it's quite interesting on the left. I think because of lifestyle politics and veganism and stuff, there can be a knee-jerk reaction to people saying that the meat and dairy industry is really destructive and would need to go. Mm. And my opinion is definitely that your answer should always be it is absolutely <laughs> destructive and the meat and dairy industry as it stands needs to go. Uh now, there's a question about if we wanted a food system to be truly sustainable, could we have any meat at all? Like if we put them back onto the land um, and didn't feed them crops, could we still have them? I mean, in terms of like my reading and what I know, I'm not concretely sure on that answer, but I would imagine given the large amount of animals we have today, um, and the fact that the only reason why we have those large amount of animals is because of the factory farming and being able to feed them the crops and also pharmaceuticals and all that other stuff that allows them to grow really quickly. Mm. Um, I would imagine in a sustainable food system, um, we would probably have a lot less meat consumption. And when you think about it, like I think back to, you know, when I talked to my mum about this, you know, her family stuff didn't eat as much meat as we did today. We don't eat as much meat as we did today because um, people naturally wanted to do that or because it's better for you. It's just because the system we were in decided they wanted to increase meat production for it's profits. More profitable, yeah. And so people are just, uh, the idea that you have meat with every meal is not some natural thing. It's just some ideological mm. thing. Okay. Well, I said, what could we do? Um to make things more sustainable, but ultimately really none of that would be possible within the boundaries of the capitalist system that we're in. Is that? Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, you know, you think about all the companies and stuff who have really big stakes <laughs> in the <laughs> agribusiness game, you know, 
companies like Bayer and Monsanto and, and those four companies that own all the seeds aren't going to give up their $300 million a year profits uh, just because we want a sustainable food system. Um, you know, the loss of profits that would be required to transition everything to sustainable farming is something that capitalists, I don't think, would give up without a big fight. Mm. So while in theory having sustainable food production that has very little greenhouse gas emissions is possible, uh, I definitely don't think it's going to happen in this system we're currently in. Okay, so we're coming to a very familiar conclusion that mm. we come to a lot on Red Flag Radio, right, Liam? Mm-hmm. Which is um, we have to get rid of capitalism. And that's what revolutionary socialism is about. And I, I think in a lot of ways, like, this, the case study of the food industry is probably, it's for me one of the most compelling um, of all the ways that capitalism is so fucked up because it's not just, I mean, it's the earth, it's literally the soil, it's animals, it's human beings, it's people starving to death, it's everything that could be beautiful about the planet being destroyed and in a very deliberate way by a system that only cares about one thing and that's not humanity and it's not animals and it's not plants Mm -hmm. so uh yeah it's a really really great um discussion to have i think and also a great reason to be an anti-capitalist and i was 12 years old when i was given a leaflet by somebody i don't even know where or maybe i just picked it up it was an organization called compassion in world farming Mm -hmm. and i grew up sort of semi on a farm and at 12 I became a vegetarian because I was just like this is barbaric because it was you know photos of animals and all that stuff and thinking how can how how do people get away with this how is this allowed it's not just allowed under capitalism it's it's been encouraged historically and you can see that through some of the discussions we've had today so um thank you very much for coming on the podcast it's been a pleasure to have you thank you for having me Thanks again, Liam. No worries. And um, you're listening to Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win. <laughs>